great song, John chapter 6 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are going through the Gospel of John on Sunday morning. And we find ourselves to perhaps the most familiar miracle in all of the Bible, or at least in the Gospels. That's the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason why that we are so familiar with it is because it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection and the incarnation. But I'm talking about miracles that... Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. It is the only miracle that is found in all four Gospels. John records eight miracles. Seven of them are unique to him, found only in his Gospel. And so this is the only miracle in John's Gospel that is found in the other three Gospels. And we could say that it was the biggest miracle because it is the miracle that involved the most people. I was thinking this week about faith healers. I don't believe in modern faith healers, but have you ever noticed how their miracles are never verifiable? All of their healings is, you know, a tingling in the ear or a rumbling in the tummy or a headache that's been there for 27 years and would never go away. Something along those lines. I think that Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and all the rest of them are charlatans and frauds and don't have enough power to heal a toothache. But how do you fake feeding 5,000? How do you fake that? And Matthew says that it was 5,000 besides the women and children. So some commentators say there could have been as many as 15, 20, 25,000 people there that day. And how are you going to play some parlor trick on that many people and make them think they saw a miracle? It's hard to fake the miracle when they're eating the miracle. And that's exactly what took place. You know the story well. It's in John 6 and verse number 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which had five barley loaves and two small fishes. And I'm sure this had to be encouraging to the young man, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he'd given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. And the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. I'm not preaching on this, but I just had a thought right there. He thanked the Lord for what they had given to him. There's a message in that, and I'm going I'm to go right by it because i got other things to preach. But when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. So I want to take the text this morning and I want to preach on this subject, dinner on the grounds, dinner on the grounds. 
It's the biggest, it's the most familiar miracle that Jesus ever performed. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't obligated to feed this crowd. This wasn't his problem. But he had compassion on the multitude and he wanted to create a teaching moment for his disciples. And so he performs this great miracle that's found in all four Gospels. Now you will notice at the very beginning of the chapter that Jesus and his disciples are once again in Galilee. And I've made the point as we have gone through this thus far in the Gospel of John that John focuses on the Lord's Judean ministry and skips over most of his Galilean ministry. At least 18 months of his three-year ministry takes place in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, and John omits most of that in his gospel. In fact, just to get our bearings, look back at chapter 2 quickly, at chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says there, the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. So his ministry begins in Galilee. Look down at verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he travels to Jerusalem, that's Judea. Look at chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse number 43. Now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. So now he's back in Galilee. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he's now back at Jerusalem. It's in our text, chapter 6 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. He's back in Galilee. Look at chapter 7, chapter 7 and verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and he goes back to Jerusalem in chapter 7. And so, so he's back and forth. Now in chapter 5, in chapter 5, it mentions that Jesus goes there for a feast of the Jews, and we don't know what feast that was. There were three annual feasts that every Jewish male went to Jerusalem for every year. John 6 takes place at the time of Passover. We read that in verse number 4. And so there's great crowds of people that are migrating or headed toward Jerusalem during this time. If the feast in chapter 5 was Passover, then a year has passed between chapter 5 and chapter 6. If the feast is tabernacles, then about five to six months has transpired. And I'm not getting into the weeds on that, but just trying to get this acclimated to where we are in the Gospels. But in this 18-month period of ministry in Galilee, Jesus performed literally hundreds of miracles. John tells you about only two of them. The first in chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son, and now the feeding of the 5,000. We're coming to the end of the Galilean ministry. He's probably only about a year away from the crucifixion. And I know that you've heard this story so many times. I have preached it. I preached it, in fact, a couple of weeks ago at another meeting I was in. And, and, and I heard it preached this week in a meeting that I was in. And there are so many ways to, to, to preach the story. But, but I meditated on how John told this story. John's gospel comes later in the first century. So when John wrote this gospel, he has Matthew, Mark, and Luke in front of him. But every person doesn't tell the same story. You and I could, could tell a story with the exact same facts, but the way that you would craft it and the way that I would craft it, it would be a different narrative. And John makes some emphases in his narrative, in his account, that the other writers do not. And I'm 
I'm interested in the things that John says that the other writers do not include. So, so, so though we are familiar with the story, and you've heard it since a child in Sunday school, just let's walk through the story and see if the Lord could teach us some lessons out of this story. And the first, the first point that I want to make about this, the first um, uh, thing to see here is, is the plight of the people. The plight of the people. Now, now, from, from the other gospels, we know that Jesus has taken his disciples to a mountain to pray. And, and great crowds of people have followed him out into a desert place. He has been performing miracles in every village and every city. And it's safe to say there's not a single person in Galilee that does not know of him. And so thousands of people, they've left their cities and villages. They've come out into this desert place to hear him preach, but also hoping to to, to receive a miracle. And some of them are far enough away from their homes that it's not practical to get back home by the end of the day. And evidently, none of them have thought to bring food. That's how this is set up. There is not a restaurant on every corner like there is now. They can't call DoorDash and have something delivered. And so, so, so here's what I want to point out to you. They have created a problem for themselves that no one has thought of before now. Now just latch on to that. They have created a problem for themselves. When we read a story like this, we come away with a lot of questions that the text does not answer. The Bible doesn't give us every detail. And for every detail that doesn't give us, we speculate and try to guess as to how it could have happened. I have heard preaching on who the lad was, um, where he got his lunch, um, what kind of fish was it? What happened to the 12 baskets of fragments? None of which the Bible actually tells us. But one thing I've always wondered when I've read this story is how is it that 5,000 people came this distance and nobody brought any food? How is it that nobody except a little boy had enough foresight to bring lunch? It seems irresponsible. At the least, it seems negligent on their behalf. Now, I'm not being harsh, but you would agree with me, they have no one to blame but themselves. Would you agree with that? They have put themselves in this position. If I could say it like this, the problem is a self-created problem. If they starve, if they go hungry, then they have nobody else to blame. They did this to themselves. They had good intentions in coming to hear Jesus, but even that was out of a selfish desire. You'll read that by the end of the chapter because they didn't come out to be saved. They came out to see if they could force Jesus to be their political king and save them from, from the Roman yoke of bondage. By the end of the chapter, all of these people that witnessed this miracle are going to leave disappointed. Because Jesus is not going to allow them to force him to become their political king. So here are people who have good intentions and in their desire to have someone deliver them from the yoke of oppression have ended up creating a crisis for themselves. Now I'm going somewhere so stay with me. They won't starve to death before they get back home. All right, I understand that. But they have created a need for themselves that not one single person can remedy. And by the way, that's exactly like the world 
around us. The problem of sin is a problem that we created. Sin is something we did. We put ourselves in this position. And when man turns to religion or morality or law keeping or whatever it is, he doesn't get closer to freedom. All that he does is digs his hole even deeper. Religion that does not point you to Jesus doesn't get you closer to heaven. It actually gets you closer to hell. And we could very easily look out upon the world that is dying and we could very easily say, you did that. You are enslaved to sin because of what you did. Did you not think about the problem that you were creating for yourself? Did you not consider the plight that you were putting yourself in? You should have never started drinking. Did somebody not warn you that drugs was not good for you? Did you not know that fornicating was not going to end up well? Their hunger is a self-created hunger. Why didn't they bring any food? Why didn't they have any forethought? Why didn't they think farther out? Why would they be so irresponsible as to do this to themselves. Now, that would be a cold-hearted approach to this whole matter, and we're not going to end there, all right? But it is facing the facts. And I pointed out to just shut down any preconceived notion that these people are innocent victims of their circumstances. It is not something that came upon them and surprised them and caught them off guard. No, if you go and live in sin and wreck your life and create a mess that you can't fix, you've got to own up to it and say, I did that. Maybe, maybe you had a horrible upbringing. Maybe you didn't have anybody to teach you or guide you when you were young. Maybe you caught up with bad friends. I understand that. Maybe there were circumstances that led you down that path, but you must own the decisions that you make. You must say, this is of my own doing. They have created a problem for themselves and none of them has a solution. Now you will see that the disciples have absolutely no pity on them. None. This is not my problem. In three of the gospels, the disciples say, send them away because this is not my problem. They should have thought about this before they got hungry. They knew dinner was coming every time of the day. They should have done something about this. What did you think that you would find in the desert? A buffet? They, they should have had some forethought. And if we're not careful, we'll develop that cold, callous heart to the plight of the sinners of the world. Yes, sin is a self-imposed problem. And the drunkard and the druggie and the fornicator is reaping the reward of their sin. That is absolutely true. But Jesus was not going to let his disciples live with that attitude. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to put their plight in their lap. This may not be your problem, but I am making it your problem now. They should have had more thought, forethought, and, and maybe they should have done something to, to meet their needs, but the need is here, and now we are going to help them. And I say to you this morning as a church that we'll never help people until we develop a heart for people. God give us a heart of compassion to see people through the eyes of pity, the plight of people. But then... I want you to notice, secondly, the compassion of Christ. Look at verse number five. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. 
Matthew and Mark will tell you that he was moved with compassion toward them. Now, when you compare the four stories, the four accounts, and I did, I laid, I laid, I laid all four accounts out. And when you compare the four, you'll notice some minor differences in how the story is told. One of the differences is who brought the need up first. Did the disciples come to Jesus or did Jesus come to the disciples? Hold your finger right here. We're going to go back and forth. Go to Matthew chapter 14. Let me show you how Matthew tells you this story. Matthew chapter 14. And look at verse number 15. Here's how it starts. Matthew 14 and verse 15. I want you to see it. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is the desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the village and buy themselves victuals. Look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, southern way of saying that is victuals. Mark chapter 6, look at verse number 35. Mark 6 verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, this is a desert place. Now the time is far past. Send them away. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, if you want to put three fingers there, that's fine, we're coming back. Luke chapter 9 and verse number 12. Luke 9 and verse 12, when the day began to wear away, then came the 12 and said unto him, send the multitude away. So you got it? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, the disciples came to him. Look at John, look at John chapter 6, look at verse 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now it's not a contradiction. It's, it's how different men tell the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke start the story with the disciples. But John has Jesus starting the conversation. And Jesus, and John tells you that Jesus brings this up early in the day as the company is coming toward them. If you read the other gospels, you get the impression that the disciples started talking about it when the need was pressing. But Jesus initiated the conversation before the need was ever there as a great company came unto him. So here's what happens. He told the disciples Early in the day, see all these people coming? We're going to need to feed them. You need to start thinking about what we're going to do. And later on when the disciples suggested, we ain't got the food and we ain't got the money, send them away. Jesus said, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. It's his compassion in that Jesus initiated that we're going to meet this need. Can I tell you, it is a remarkable thing that Jesus had compassion on these people. Here's the reason why. They're not family. They're not even close friends. I have no problem having pity on my own loved ones. But it's a little bit harder on strangers. It's easy to pity people that you love, but the rank stranger, we don't have any pity in our heart for them. And it's remarkable that Jesus had compassion on them because he's God. And there is no religion where a deity has love 
and compassion and mercy toward people. But aren't you glad that Jesus is different? Aren't you glad that our God is a God of compassion? And I want you to know this morning that Christ has a heart for his people and Christ cares. We have people in our church right now that are going through some very difficult things and I want you to know that Christ cares about the hurts of his people. We sing that song, Does Jesus Care? Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with our grief. Why do we sing that? Because it is true. The compassion of Christ. But then I want you to notice the demands upon the disciples. As I've studied how John tells the story, there's several details that are different. Come, come back to Mark, Matthew 14. Should have put a bookmark there. But, but watch this. Watch this. Matthew 14. Look at verse number 15 again. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him. Look, look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Watch this. Mark 6 verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Watch this. Luke chapter 9. Look at verse number 12. And when the day began to wear away, Ten came to 12. Come to John chapter 6. Look at verse 16. We are well past the miracle. And when even was now come. Do you notice that? Matthew, Mark, and Luke place the miracle happening in the evening. John doesn't mention the evening until well after the miracle. Everything that takes place in John 6, all this conversation in this dialogue by the miracles, or by, by, by the disciples, it happens during the day. Then the miracle happens and John says, now it is evening. Look at John 6 and look at verse number 5. What, what's this? When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. Now, I've already mentioned this, but, 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 but the disciples make it, the, the, the synoptics make it sound like that the disciples waited till the evening when they noticed we have a problem on our hands and we need to send them away. They found this kid with his lunch and Jesus performed an impromptu miracle that, that, that they had just noticed. But that's not how John says it. Look what he says. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company Come unto him. He brings the matter up as the crowd is coming. Do, do y'all see that? I'm just reading the Bible. That's all I'm doing. He brings it up as the crowd is coming. This is much earlier. This is not the evening. This is the beginning of the day. And he puts the need to the disciples early. It's not them coming to him first. It is him putting the need on their plate first. Y'all see this crowd? They've all come out here without food and we're going to have a great need on our hands later on in the day and you fellows need to start thinking now about what we're going to do for dinner. Figure out how we are going to buy enough food to feed this multitude at the end of the day. John gives you another little detail you don't find in the other gospels. Look at verse number six. And this he said to prove him for he himself knew what he would do. 
Jesus, Jesus brought the problem up, told the disciples we're going to feed them, and they immediately go into crisis mode. You're going to hear them talking about how much it's going to cost. We ain't got enough food. We ain't got enough bread. There's too many people here. You, you're going to hear them. And at the very beginning, before anything has happened, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. Before the little boy brings his lunch, he already knows how it is going to end up. So I tell you, it was a setup from the very beginning. I mean, before anything happened, Jesus knew how this thing is going to end. And he put this need in their lap as a test. It's a test is what it is. And the best that they could do is recommend Jesus just send them all away. Let them fend for themselves. But Jesus knew that's not what's going to happen. And it all brings up the emphasis that John is making about the inadequacy of the disciples to meet the need. Jesus spends the day teaching the multitude. And in the background, these disciples are fretting. They're talking and they're whispering. They're trying, what what, what, what are we going to do? Evening comes and the people are still there. They haven't eaten for hours. Now it is time for a meal. And all they have is a little boy's lunch. And Jesus said, we can work with that. He has the crowd sits down and, and he pushes this issue of feeding them. There's something else about this miracle that I want you to notice that you won't find in any other miracle in the Gospels. It is the only miracle in which the disciples assist Jesus in the miracle. The miracle took place in his hands. But he used the disciples to distribute the miracle to the people. I'm going somewhere, all right? I'm going somewhere. The miracle took place in his hands. I try not to get excited about what I know I'm getting ready to say, all right? The miracle took place in his hands, but it was distributed by his disciples. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, likewise of the fishes as much as they would when they were filled. He said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be left. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves which remained over and above under them that had eaten. Here's what he says. He said, have the men sit down in companies of 50. Companies of 50. And so these men sit down in groups of 50. And then the disciples are going to disperse the bread. And then they go back and disperse the fish. Then they come back with baskets and they gather 12 baskets of fragments. And and we we pass through that so quickly. But can you imagine if we had 5,000 people show up for dinner on the grounds? We're having an anniversary last Sunday of May. I think it is. We're going to have a fish fry that day. And if 5,000 people showed up, that's a whole lot of fish. Paul Elisha would have a heart attack is what she'd have. Can you imagine? How long would it take to plate 5,000, 5,000 plates of fish and coleslaw and hush puppies and all that? How long would it take? 12 disciples, 12 disciples doing this. Jesus did the multiplying, watch this, but the disciples did the work. He puts the need to them at the beginning. He puts them to work at the end. So all along, 
Jesus knew that disciples are going to be involved and in no other miracle do they assist him. So get this. Jesus brought the need to the disciples, told them early on, you're going to do something about it. He let them fret all day to prove they are inadequate. And when he performed the miracle, he involved them in it. Huh? Oh, yeah. He placed the responsibility on their lap. He let it be known early on that I'm going to be calling upon you when it is time to eat. And they could grumble amongst themselves and, and, and this shouldn't be our responsibility, but it is their responsibility for one simple reason. Do you know why? Jesus said it was. He never asked their assistance in any other miracle. But he involved them in feeding the multitude. And do we not see a picture of our own responsibility in dispersing the bread of life to a world that is dying without Christ? Do you know why we support missions? Because he so told us to. You know why we give our money to faith promise missions and send missionaries to the foreign field? And you know why we knock on doors and do mailing campaigns and pass out tracts? I'll tell you why. Because he told us to. Now, as a church, we can grumble about the cost of missions and the inconvenience and whatever other excuse we come up with, but you cannot escape the fact that the Great Commission was given to the church. Matthew 28, verse 18, 19, and 20 was written to you and it was written to me. We do a lot for missions around our church, but I'll be honest with you, we don't do enough. Now somebody help me out just a little bit, all right? I feel like preaching if you feel like listening. Do a lot for missions. We ought to do more. We're having a missions revival in May and, and having Brother Joel Logan come in, Brother Danny Farley's gonna come in. Three days of just preaching on missions to stir our heart for missions. Somebody said, don't you have a mission conference in September? We do, we do, but I have found that is hard for us to keep our hearts hot for missions for a whole year. So we need something in between just to kind of remind us. Amen. Can, can I say something to Victory Baptist Church? If you're visiting with us this morning, these next 30 seconds do not apply to you. But if you're a member of Victory Baptist Church, you ought to give to missions. And if you don't give to missions, you ought to start today. Well, the economy, the inflation, whatever, huh? But somewhere we got to be done with our excuses and get back on board with the program of Christ for the church and the need, the, the, need, the need of the world is placed upon the church, the demands of the disciples. But then I want you to notice the scarcity of the supply. Look at verse number five. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming to him, he said unto Philip, When should we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? So Jesus has put the need in their lap early on in the day. There's consternation amongst them about the need and the inadequacy of what's available. And Philip and Andrew, they, they play an active role in trying to figure out what are we going to do? And these two men have evaluated the situation. They've determined it is simply not impossible. And every statement that comes out of their mouth is a statement of unbelief. 
Here's what they said. When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Even if we have deep pockets, where do you think we're going to get it from? I mean, we out in a desert place. I mean, there, there ain't, no, ain't no restaurants out here. You don't see a Walmart close by. So, so where do you think we're even going to get the food, even if we had the money? Well, that's real positive. Verse number seven, Philip. 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Now, I think that he said 200 penny worth of bread because they probably had 200 penny worth in the treasury. Judas was the treasury of the group and perhaps had gone to him for a treasury report. And he said, well, fellas, the offering's been down lately. This is really not the time to be taking on any new charity works right now. 200 penny worth, it's a lot of money. Maybe nearly a year's wages. Maybe they had that much, but it is not enough. Jesus, I don't know where you get the ideas from, but you know money don't just grow on trees. We can't afford this. And then notice what Andrew says in verse number nine. There is a lad here which have five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? We have so little to work with and there's so many of them. And can I tell you that they're right? From the human standpoint, there are too many people. They don't have the resources. And from a human standpoint, it is an impossible task. And the only thing they have not counted yet is they have not counted the Lord. They have watched him do impossible things all over Galilee. Surely he could do something about this. If you ever travel to a mission field, and I wish every family in our church would, one of the things you'll be overwhelmed with is the enormity of the need. You don't see that if you just stay in Santa Rosa County. But you travel around the world, there's a whole lot of people. We were over in Bangladesh, February I believe it was, and I've never seen so many people in one place. Bangladesh has 170 million people. It is the size of Georgia. There are people everywhere. Everywhere you go, team and millions of people. I, I've flown in to cities like Mexico City and San Paulo, and you're flying at night, and you see the lights of that city, and it, it is lights for miles and miles and miles and miles. It's just people everywhere. And you look at how many people, you look at how little we are, and you say we could never reach the world. But what is impossible to us is possible with Christ. And by the way, there is another detail in all four Gospels that demonstrate this to us. And I won't go back to the passages, but in all four Gospels, Jesus tells the disciples, have the men sit down before he performs the miracle. They bring him five loaves and two fishes. He holds it in his hands and he says to them, have the men sit down in companies of 50. He does not tell them what he's going to do. So without knowing what's getting ready to happen, without having read the gospel, without knowing how the story ends, go ahead and have everybody sit down. Can you imagine if I announced at the end of the service Everybody head to the fellowship hall. We're having dinner on the ground. Paula Lasser, I mean, she would be in a friend. What's he doing? We ain't got no food here. What does he think we're doing? We've got, we got the wrong day. Well, that's exactly what he does. 
without telling them what he has in mind, you have everybody sit down. There's the expectation. He's getting ready to do something. He's getting ready to feed them somehow, some way. So you go ahead and you have everybody sit down. And by the way, Jesus doesn't organize the company of men. They do that. You do what you can do. And Jesus is not going to do what you can. He's not going to pass the track out. He's not going to knock on the door. He's not going to put the faith promise missions in. He tells the disciples to do it and you have to do it by faith. He does not tell you, how, he doesn't tell you what he's going to do with it, but he multiplies the food and he gives them the responsibility of dispersing it. And the disciples could only think in terms of what had been done before. You know what they've always done when they needed food? They went to the store to get it. That's the only thing that they can think of doing. But Jesus has a different way. Jesus has a better way. And he's not interested in just how we've always done it before. I wonder, I wonder what would be possible if we quit trying to figure out how and we just got busy doing it because you are inadequate. You don't have the supply. We cannot do it alone. That, that, that is the truth. There's a missionary, young missionary right now going to New Zealand and he has a goal of mailing a John and Romans to every household in New Zealand. 1.3 million households in New Zealand. That's a lot, isn't it? We have several hundred thousand John Romans coming to the print shop this week, I believe it is. We have committed a hundred thousand John Romans to send to him to get this started. And I think there's other ministries that are involved. And, 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 and we're going to help him. And if, that, if, if he mails them out, then, then I'm sure that, that we, we will help him some more. Victory Baptist Press, listen, Victory Baptist Press has sent Bibles literally around the world, dozens and dozens of countries we've sent Bibles to. And if we were to sit down with, with, with an accountant or a calculator and figure out the cost analysis, how much paper and how much ink and, and, and salaries and shipping and all of that, this is what our budget is going to be next year. We'd shut it down next week. There's not enough money. It cannot be done. But we're not operating on the world's economy. We're not operating by the Federal Reserve or inflation or the rising cost of paper. No, we're looking at a mighty God, a mighty big God who has taken care of it before. He has taken upon himself to partner with us and we are partners with him. And a little in your hands becomes a lot in the Savior's hands. The scarcity of the supply. I, I gotta hurry, I, I really do. But I want you to notice the contribution of the child. Look at verse number nine. In verse number nine, there is a detail that John gives you that's not found in any other gospel. There is a lad here. Every Sunday school teacher that's ever told this story told the part of the lad. But the other three gospels tell you that the disciples said we have five barley loaves and two fishes. They don't tell you where it came from. John's the only gospel writer to tell you about that little boy. Five, I preached this the other day, so I'm not going to re-preach it, all right? Five words. There is a lad here. That's all that is ever said about him in all of the Bible. And in five words, that's it. That's it. 
In five words, never mentioned in the story again, but five words, every person in here knows the part that he played. I preached this several weeks ago. I'm I'm not going to preach it again. It's interesting to me, by the way, guys, it's interesting to me that the other three gospel writers don't mention him. So we could say that he was overlooked by most. But the Holy Ghost made sure. No, we're going to mention him. And we're going to remember what he did for the Lord. Give you a little outline if you want to write it down. This will preach somewhere down the road. I'll tell you something about this little boy. I noticed that he was little. Maybe a preteen. I don't know if his parents were there or not. No name, no town that he was from. Nothing but just a little boy. And he didn't get a whole lot of attention. And I hope you're okay with that, by the way. Because if you're the kind of person that has to have a pat on your back, if you're the kind of person that has to have your name recorded, if you're the kind of person that has been spotlight, you probably won't do much for the Lord. He was little. And then I noticed that he was listening. See, I don't think that the disciples confiscated his lunch. I think that he volunteered it. I think that he overheard them talking about the problem, the need. Little boys, little boys are not prone to noticing other people's needs. And little boys don't usually give to meet other people's needs. Most of the boys I've ever encountered are selfish. And if they do give, they usually don't give at all. They're going to keep something back for themselves. And there were probably other little lads there, but this little lad is close enough to hear what's going on. I'll say this in passing. Sometimes God speaks to the hearts of our children. And you've got to be careful that you don't discourage God's voice in their heart. If your children ever want to give something, don't, don't discourage that. That could be God speaking to them. So I noticed he was little and I noticed he was listening and I noticed that he was limited. Big need. He didn't have much. Barley loaves is a poor man's bread and the Bible makes a point to say that it was small fish. I'd say he had enough about, enough for a little boy. You know, we're all limited. Put us all together in one basket. We're a big bunch of nothings is what we are. He he was limited, but he was liberal. Now, it's the only thing you ought to be liberal in, but to be liberal in giving. He didn't have six loaves and say, I'll give you five, keep one myself. He didn't have four fish and say, give you two, but I'm going to keep two for myself. The indication is that he gave it all. He didn't keep something back to fall back on. He gave everything that he had. And I know that you have to have money to pay the bills, but don't be, don't give the minimum. Be liberal in your giving. Just, just a little lad. Can I, can I say, can I say, I'm going to be done. You'll never be too little for God. You may get too big for God, but you'll never be too little for God. You may get to the place where you have too much, but you'll never get to the place where you have too little. You, you may get too important that God can't use you, but you'll never be too unimportant that God can't use you. Been many a preacher that got too important, got caught up in his own press reports, whatever. And he got too big that God couldn't use him. There's never been a preacher that was too meek, too lowly, too humble that God couldn't use him. Contribution of the child. And I close with this. The magnitude of the miracle. There's one way in which this miracle is unique and all the others. It is a miracle of creation. In all of the other miracles, 
especially health miracles, Jesus is restoring. It is a miracle of restoration. He restored sight to the blind. He restored hearing to the deaf, even restoring life to the death and touching the leper. He restored health to him. But in this miracle, Jesus performed the miracle of creation. He took the bread and he created more bread. He took the fish and he created more fish. You ever thought about the process of making bread? You ever thought about the steps? Somebody has to plant a seed in the field. And the sun activates the nutrients in the ground and causes it to grow. And rain has to fall. And that stalk begins to grow in the ground and it produces ears of grain. And then somebody has to come and they have to harvest that grain. Then in that day, they would separate the chaff from the wheat or the barley, whatever it might be. That grain is ground in the pot and it's prepared to bake. And then you have to put that loaf in the oven. And Jesus bypassed every step of that process and created bread from grain that had never been in the ground. Think about those fish. Eggs have to hatch. Fish have to be born as little tiny minnows. They've got to live in the sea and they have to escape all the predators of the sea. They've got to grow up and somebody has to catch them. Not only do they have to catch them, but they've got to prepare them. They've got to cook them. Jesus served them fish that had never been in the ocean. And I'm sure he didn't give them to them alive, so he created dead fish. I can't imagine them eating raw fish, but there ain't nowhere out there to fry the fish. So he created fish that were served, cleaned, filleted, fried. All you have to do is add tartar sauce. That's what he did. You think about it. These people, these people got to see just a little taste of what God did in Genesis chapter number one. They witnessed the creation of bread and fish at the hands of the Creator. All four Gospels tell you that when Jesus fed them, they were all filled. And there were 12 baskets of fragments that remained. Andrew said, if we could just feed them a little. Jesus don't do things like that. He don't do just a little. They were all filled. 12 baskets of fragments. You'll never explain this. I never explained this, but they had more at the end than they had at the beginning. If I have five loaves and I give you two, I only have three left over. If I have two, I give you one. I've got one left over. That's math. Math doesn't lie unless it's common core math. Two plus two equals four always. But somehow God has a different way of doing math. That little lad, that little lad gave all that he had. But as it passed through the hands of the Savior, somehow it multiplied. And it ended up more in his hands than what it would have ever been in that little boy's hands. If he would have held it in his hands, 
all it would have ever been was five loaves and two fishes. But in the hands of the Savior, a little becomes a lot. I cannot explain this. Anna's coming to the piano. I, I can't explain this at all. But some of you will say amen to what I'm about to say. I have given thousands and thousands of dollars away to missions. I tithe every dime that I make. I give to faith promise. I give offerings. I go off and preach meetings here and there. and Half the time I end up giving my offering away. Twice this year I've been in a meeting. And I gave them a check back to the preacher. There's a missionary here. There's a preacher here. There's a church planner here. And I want you to give this. Friday night in the church that I was preaching in in Mississippi, they, they had a man in the church that had, had some back issues, having back surgery, and he was been out of work for a couple of weeks. They took up an offer, and I reached in my pocket. And I took everything that I had in my pocket. It was a little, a little over $100. I just took everything out of my pocket and just put it in the offering. I got a credit card to get home on. And I cannot explain this. If I was using a calculator and somehow could calculate all the money that I've given over the years, and you could say the same thing, and if I could take that money and have kept it into my checking account, if I could just get it, since you would think that would add to my net worth, that's how math works. I believe with all of my heart, if I could have kept everything that I've given and just left it in my checking account, I think I'd have less what I have right now. I believe by me giving, by me giving, you say, no, it, 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 it does. I believe by me giving, I have more in my checking account right now than I would have had had I not given. You don't give expecting God to give back, but he does. Give, and it should be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, Shaken together, running over, shall men give unto your bosom. I have more because I've given more. I have more than if I had just kept it all in my pocket. All of that money would have gone somewhere. How to spend it, how to waste it, I, I don't know. But God says, if you'll trust me, if you'll trust me, I'll reward you with much. We don't say much about giving around here. I probably said more about it today than I've said any Sunday this year. But you know, there might be some of you this morning in our church, just in our church, that needs to learn the joy and the grace of giving. It could be that you're in a financial wreck because you can't trust God enough to put it into His hands. You say you can't afford to tithe. You can't afford not to tithe. You think you can't give to missions because of the economy. You've got too many bills. But you don't realize what God can do with just a little. You're missing out on one of the great blessings, one of the great joys of the Christian life. You're depriving yourself of knowing the blessings of God. Some of us have seen God do miraculous things. Nothing on the scale of feeding 5,000. But we've seen God do some things that was too big for us. I've seen God open doors. I've seen Him provide in ways that I didn't see. I've seen Him meet needs that I thought was impossible. And every time that God steps into an impossible situation... It just increases our faith for the next step of the journey. When you put a little in his hands, it becomes a lot. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?